Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Jamie Chan. Jamie is a PhD researcher and a doctoral tutor in the School of Psychology at the University of Sussex. Jamie is studying psychological processes underlying women's social class and body image from a social from a social psychological perspective, including cultural differences and discrimination. Jamie joins us today to discuss their research regarding body image and the social psychological differences that present for different cultures. Hello, Jamie. Hello, Hannah. I really struggled with that introduction. (laughs) (laughs) I should have cut it down. No, no, not at all. No, I, um, I love it when, when people give me like a really good overview of them, but I think there was a lot of like, s's and ps's and my my brain was almost like 10 words behind my mouth (laughs) I almost put a tongue twister in there so oh did you oh my god well I'm glad you didn't because I couldn't deal with that (laughs) what was the tongue twister gonna be uh that was clearly a lie (laughs) oh <laughs> oh, how embarrassing. Oh my god, I am a very literal person. Um, oh, I wish I wish I thought of something on the spot. Yeah, no, that, that would have been, been even funnier. Yeah, it's especially yeah. if it was like something body image related as well. I would have uh, would have been very impressed. Um but yeah, thank you so much <clears throat> for joining me today. Um I am very happy to have you on the podcast. Um shout out to Camilla for their wonderful lecture series and how we managed to get in touch. Um so I guess just to start with for the listeners, are you okay to sort of give us a bit of background about yourself, how you got into the research environment that you're in now? Yeah, so I am doing a PhD um and my PhD is largely focused around body image and social class amongst women in England specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got into body image in about, well, body image research in about 2018, I think, when I was doing my master's. Um, somehow ended up doing a dissertation with my current supervisor, uh, Megan Hurst, who's absolutely amazing. <laughs> um, and I think in part, it's probably because of that like really great experience that I really enjoyed doing body image research and the rest is history. Amazing and what was it that you did kind of when you were doing your master's that sort of led you to to where you are now what was that kind of starting Uh, thing? Yeah so that project was to look at South Asian women's experiences in the UK so their body image experiences in terms of acculturation and um, skin color satisfaction and their body satisfaction so that was sort of a larger project but then we then choose to focus specifically on skin color and body dissatisfaction Um, yeah so obviously aside from the social class aspect I also do some work on like racialized cultural stuff around Mm -hmm. body image um, which I guess we'll talk about today. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I guess that leads us really in nicely into kind of, you know, the starting, maybe a starting topic. So what when you did your master's, what did you find about um, the experiences of South, the experiences of South Asian women and their body image and things like that within the UK? So one of the things that I looked at, which 
at the time I thought was quite interesting and, and it's still quite interesting is their experiences of being teased in relation to mm-hmm. their sort of ethnic appearances. So like specific racialized physical features in their physical appearance that is visible by other people. Um, and so we found that their experiences of being teased um, led them to feel more dissatisfied with their skin color, which then led them to feel more dissatisfied with their body. And this was only through that dissatisfaction with the skin color. So that, mm-hmm. so it kind of shows that, you know, skin color is quite an important thing to South mm-hmm. Asian women um, in, well, for lots of reasons, I guess. Culturally, it's important, again, for various reasons. It's important in terms of marriage. So, you know, there's this, this thing in the culture about having light skin um, might increase mm-hmm. their marriage prospects. And especially for women, marriage is quite a significant life event for South Asian mm-hmm. women. Um, and then there's also that sort of colonial aspect of, you know, having fair skin because India used to be colonized by the Brits and there's this sort of generational um, white skin, fair skin ideal that's been passed down. And so skin color is quite important to South Asian women because of that. Um, so, yeah, so basically found that being teased let them to feel more dissatisfied with their skin color, which then let them to feel more dissatisfied about their bodies. Right. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, I guess if the skin color is something that has such like a a massive hold or, you know, as a cultural element that is so important, then, you know, being teased about that in in whatever way, shape or form is going to cause that dissatisfaction. And when you say about like body dissatisfaction, was that sort of like an extra element on top of the um, dissatisfaction or you know the comments around the skin color were there particular elements of a woman's body that kind of came up that people were more dissatisfied with um so this because of the way that the study was kind of conducted so it's a quantitative study so they answered mm-hmm. a bunch of questions on the survey that body dissatisfaction sort of measure measured um like a, an overall body right. dissatisfaction And so it just kind of goes to show that being dissatisfied with their skin also leads them to a broader sense of dissatisfaction with their body. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, while we're talking about skin color and like being in the UK as well, I think there's this really interesting thing about like the ideal of having fair skin being more prominent amongst the South Asian, well, like within the South Asian culture because of all the reasons that I've mentioned before. Mm -hmm. But then also there's this sort of like, British white ideal um, that kind of favors having tan skin, which kind of conflicts Mm -hmm. that South Asian ideal. So then that that project, while the larger project was sort of to look at these conflicting ideals as well. But obviously we, you know, we focused on the the teasing aspect of it in that in that Mm -hmm. paper. Um, But that conflicting ideal is quite interesting in terms of placing people of color within a, a white dominant population or white dominant environment. So are you saying within your research, sorry, just to clarify that the South Asian women, were they kind of aligning with the kind of fair skin ideal and then also aligning with that sort of white British tanned ideal? Or was that sort of like another element that white British people have the sort of, they want to have tanned skin. And so then that sort of interplays there in my study specifically we didn't um look at that conflicting ideal Mm -hmm. within my study but then but there are other studies that looked at these differences in ideals um and there is sort of a general finding across different studies you know it's kind of similar that south asian women 
are essentially susceptible to both ideals. So there's this wow. sense of conflict of like, well, when I'm within the larger, broader, white general population, I feel like I need to have tan skin and like having darker skin is favorable. Like my, you know, my white friends thinks is great. But then when I'm with my family, like they're like, oh, like don't go in the sun because you'll get Gosh. super tan and you're not, you know, you're supposed to have yeah. fair skin for whatever reasons. And so there's this real sense of conflict. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I can imagine. Um, it's almost like, you know, being in one community, you need, there's like one ideal, but then another community, there's another ideal. And, you know, obviously your skin color does change, tans fade and, and what have you, but it's not something you can sort of like, you know, it's, it's not like, I can't think of something that you could tattoos you could show your tattoos when you're maybe with your friends and hide your tattoos when you're not with your friends but your skin color that's not something so that pressure to sort of fit into both places must be so difficult to manage which I again guess leads into that body dissatisfaction because if you're dissatisfied with your skin color which is all over you um and I think like when I think about maybe like my experience of being dissatisfied with my body you know as as somebody that is white British I am more, always much more satisfied with my body when it's tanned because it looks more toned and it looks more like muscular because of that definition um so I've never really thought about the impact of skin color before but I think it does it does really impact the way that you see your body yeah I think it's I mean it's definitely cultural as well and I think mm -hmm. in part as well it's it's that sense of discrimination almost like when you're when you have tan skin or like darker skin and being of like a minoritized racial ethnic group that it might come with a different sense of standing out as opposed to you know having tan skin as a white British woman and so I think in part is that colorism and that that sense of racism as well that might that might contribute to that negative body image experience yeah and you know naturally I think another thing in that is when you talk about maybe standing out and stuff like that the maybe body type of somebody that is a South Asian women woman compared to maybe a white British woman it can be quite different um and it's interesting actually we had um a few months ago had Lara Bella on the podcast and so she is um from Italy but her partner is Singaporean and they now live in Singapore and I mean it's the opposite but I guess the point I'm trying to make is it's going to be the same in that she found it very difficult moving to Singapore because her body type was so different to um you know the Singaporean women and I can imagine that would be the same here in that the body types of South Asian women are probably quite different to white British women. And so adapting there as well, um, I can imagine would be quite challenging. Yeah, I mean, it's I think in part it's because your body is not something that you can just switch from moments to moment. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that comes with that challenge of like needing to work on it to shape it and like whether or not you can shape it to whatever ideal you want to shape it to may not you know like it it may not happen like no matter how much you work on it it may not happen sometimes it's just a racialized situation like you know um i have like almond shaped eyes and i can't shape that so you know so and that the satisfaction if i were to feel dissatisfied with it it will stay forever unless i get plastic surgery i guess um but that point about 
Singapore is quite interesting because I'm from Malaysia. Mm-hmm. And so like, it's a very similar context to Malaysia and Singapore. Um, and I can, I can totally imagine how um, she would have stood out in that environment. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I think she found it quite difficult in, in adjusting to that. Um, and I guess just maybe thinking about like the Eastern and Western culture, do you like from your research or maybe from your experience do you think that the things that individuals are maybe dissatisfied with in terms of their body vary between south asian women let's say that are living in the east compared to those that are living in the west i think i think there may be differences in the Mm. sense that if so for example south asian women living in south asia for, for instance may not necessarily be exposed to that conflicting ideal that i that i mentioned before but having said that like in our current time like media is so prevalent like Mm. we see white images everywhere and i mean you know as much as diversity is picking up speed these days it's still pretty white centric and so i guess that ideal still exists in south asia or east asia or southeast asia even um but maybe it's it may not be as prevalent because it's something that exists in the tv but then research have also found that there are impacts you know media social media media tv does affect our body image experiences Mm -hmm. and so i guess maybe the thing that we kind of need to think about is the location not just the location but also like the identities that a person Mm. embodies within that location like within the uk for instance because of that racialized minority identity that a south asian woman might have um it might come with different experiences so of maybe racism sexism all sorts of discrimination related to that as opposed to maybe south asian women living in south asia which might come with a different type of sexism and a different type of racism so yeah. it's not that it's not that like they might have better or worse body image, but it might be just like different. Different. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such an interesting point that you make about like social media and TV and things like that, because I think if I'd have asked you that question five, ten years ago, it would have been, yeah, like the pressures are different and and stuff like that. But because we we live in a society now where, you know, you have access to the media all across the world i think you're so right in that people are still exposed to those pressures even if they're maybe not living you know with people that kind of look like them you know walking down the street and stuff so that's really interesting yeah and i think oh sorry go on no i was just thinking i was just gonna say like if and then this is literally just like a brain a brain fart thought coming out of my head but like because it's on the tv and on like social media and not necessarily within your community do you think that that makes it like more of an ideal because it's almost like idolized because it's on the tv if you get what i mean like you know back when we were kids and you'd see someone on the tv and like they were the person you idolized because they were like unreachable in a sense whereas if they're like walking up and down the street you might just see that as normal. I don't know if that if I'm making sense, but I'm just thinking that it might be like more of an ideal because it's something that you see like almost in Hollywood. 
Yeah, but I, I think I think that distinction does exist, but whether or not that causes a different effect is a different mm -hmm. story. I, sure. I mean, like I've spoken to, I mean, in, in a different, completely different study, some of my participants have mentioned these sort of unattainable ideals that they see in like TV shows, like back in the 2000s, sort of, you know, like 90210 kind of. Yeah like washboard apps kind of mm -hmm. ideal on tv but they still kind of want to attain that you know that mm -hmm. appearance and so it's like it's almost like they know that it's not attainable it may not be realistic but they still want to try and get it and when they don't like when they sort of fail quote unquote fail to attain that body type they still feel upset about it mm -hmm. so they might no, they might know that it's not realistic. It might just be a Hollywood thing, but it may not cause that much of a difference. But also this, I mean, this reminds me of a really interesting um, point that came up in one of the more recent papers um, that I've been working on with a group of really great people. Um, it's not currently published yet, but there was this point about um, how even though representation of more diverse individuals have started appearing on on you know the main screens and stuff that there is a very specific type of people of color that appear and they and they may not necessarily be reflective of the general population yeah and and it's i mean this this particular example is not something that came up in any of the research but it's just something that i've read on twitter or one of the social media platforms but i was just reading about simu liu um who played the Asi the asian guy in shang chi mm -hmm. um he someone said on twitter that you know he's not he doesn't look like a typical asian dude and he, you know he just looks like a whitewash version of of what an Asian man should look like, you know, with the with the muscular body and the jawline and all that. And when you think about the sort of people of color who appears on mainstream TV, it it has a similar vibe. It's sort of like the white perfected version of people of color that are presented on in the media. Yeah. And, and this might sound really naive, but I'm just interested to hear what your thoughts are. But like, why, what do you think the reason is behind that? Well, I guess the lens is still pretty white focused. Mm -hmm. And so in order to, from a business perspective, I guess, or like from a media perspective, in order to sell a film mm -hmm. and in order to be politically correct, to increase representation, just try and you know, fit the circle into the square, however, in whatever way possible. And I guess whilst it is good that we are seeing more people of color, but the representation may not necessarily be accurate. And mm -hmm. to some extent, I think it does affect people's body image um, just because when you see a person of color on screen that doesn't look like you, it might send the message that, well, it's doable, you should look that way, but it may not necessarily be achievable mm -hmm. yeah and I think it part of me thinks is it even worse than you know not having somebody of color because you're literally trying you're you know you're taking somebody of color and making them you know I'm using quote marks here like more white which actually feels worse than not having in, in my opinion I don't know it feels worse than not having someone of color at all because you're trying to change them to still kind of fit your ideal 
um so it's almost like you're more aware of what you're doing by doing that yeah I think I think there are certainly pros and cons and Mm -hmm. I think if we look at it as sort of a first step to increasing real representation then it can Mm -hmm. be seen as a a benefit because we are seeing more people of color and I think by just by seeing like the increasing number of people people of color on screen might have a positive effect in the sense that people Mm -hmm. might be more a little bit more open to different types of appearance even though it's not necessarily you know like the the most accurate representation but there there is some diversity and there is some exposure um but then obviously there's a bit of that trade-off um Mm -hmm. but i guess with every every step in terms of progress there's always some sort of pro and con Mm -hmm. um so i don't think there's an absolute um perspective on this situation Yeah. yeah i mean i guess a little step is better than no step um and but it does make me i don't know I feel angry that you're all, it, it's almost like, oh, we're, we're doing it gently to make those adjustments. And, and I feel very angry that that is the case and that it can't just be something that happens and, you know, everybody just kind of is, is fine with it. I don't know. I, I guess maybe naively of me, it's not something that has really been on my radar and I, you know, I feel quite bad about that. Maybe it's, you know, internalized for me, but yeah, I'm just a bit like, why does that have to be something that we have to adjust ourselves to? Yeah, I think, I mean, this is not me trying to defend the industry or anything, but I think maybe sometimes it's not even a conscious process Mm -hmm. because, you know, like the white, like white focus lens is so prevalent that it's sort of like the gold standard and it's not like and because it's so normalized we don't really see anything beyond that lens and it's almost like like i was reading i was reading something a few years ago and it says that everyone is inherently racist not because they're terrible human beings Mm -hmm. but it's just because we're socialized within these environments that make us inherently racist and i think it's the same thing with this with the white centric lens in in the media it's just been the norm for such a long time that i think maybe it just takes a while for us to step back and consider different lenses and i think it's the same in research as well like in body image research the white sort of focus framework has been the dominant frameworks in body image in the body image literature for such a long time that it's like gradually there are different voices emerging but then it will take time to completely shift um you know body image research into uh like an absolutely holistically diverse body of literature it will take time yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, I mean, body image and eating disorders, it's a very sort of white female centric thing. Um, and, you know, I think there is movement in the right direction in terms of thinking more about male body image, thinking about, you know, different cultures, different ethnicities and, and, and body image issues. Um, but it is still very much sort of that like white kind of female centric thing. And 
I was just thinking, because um, I know when you did your lecture with um, Camille, you did a bit of an overview on sort of like the timeline for body image research. And I thought that might be quite a nice segment there as we're talking about maybe the development of that and how that has maybe shifted a little bit to think about different ethnicities and races. Um, so, yeah, to just explore maybe how things have changed over the past few years. Yeah, um, I mean, as you said, you know, there was a time when we all thought that body image disturbances and eating disorders was like a, it was an exclusively white mm -hmm. middle class sort of disorder. True. I mean, I say at one time we all would have heard of it, but obviously, depending on when you were born, I don't think mm -hmm. people hear about this anymore these days because it's, you know, we're, we are move, moving away from that. Um, I think that was probably like a good 50 years ago, maybe back in the 70s, and loads have happened since like the 70s up till now um i think one of the sort of more significant time points in the last 50 years was probably around the 90s when you know we've started um taking into account like what we call the socio-cultural factor in body image research so considering social influences so like the people around you your family your friends and cultural factors so like stuff in the media like we said before um, advertisements, um, social messaging, social media these days. Um, so by considering these external influences um, and their effects on our body image, we kind of have, I guess we, we, I guess in a way we've started moving away from looking at body image experiences, I mean, body image disturbances and eating disorders as a specifically white thing, like a, as an inherently ethnic-based um, disorder um, to sort of considering it as being the product of the environments that you've been in. Mm. And so that's quite a significant shift, I think. And obviously in the last 10, 20 years, in the last 10 years, I would say, research in body image has, has grown rapidly. So we've started, you know, considering, we've started recruiting lots of diverse samples. We've started um, loads of like qualitative interview focus group based studies recruiting specific racialized minority groups have started emerging and that's good because we're you know by interviewing them with, by talking to them we are giving them space to express their experiences and we're not just sort of imposing what we know on them as you know in terms of like quantitative studies where we give them a survey we analyze their data and we see if their experiences match up to what we know or not so like these, these are all great things. And, you know, we've started considering intersectionality a lot more, just considering the different identities that intersect for, you know, particular individuals. And all of these stuff have, have been happening in like the last 10 years or so, like relatively rapidly in comparison to like the 40 years before it. So I think good, thing, good things will con continue to come, um, hopefully, uh, in terms of, you know, diverse sampling and, and stuff like that and body image. Mm. I think that's such an interesting point that you make about the fact that research, you know, having the interviews with people and learning about their experiences rather than just getting them to fill out a questionnaire and comparing that to what we already know. Um, because I think for a long time, I, I mean, even when I sort of did my master's, which was 2021, 20, um, mm. uh, which was an eating disorders master's, and it was very much like 
I don't know, whenever we spoke about maybe different ethnicities or different races and eating disorders that existed, we were very much taking the, like, this is what we know of eating disorders from, like, you know, in a white woman, and this is the one that matches for maybe, let's say, a black woman. Um, And it was very much like mapping the race to the eating disorder of the information that we already know, rather than, you know, exploring... And I've always been very, I I, I remember when I first started this podcast and I would be very like, oh, um, you know, this eating disorder is really common in men or like this eating disorder is really common in like black women. And now it's just like, no, that's not like we can't, we can't do it like that anymore. It needs to be any eating disorder can be any, can exist anywhere. Um, but giving somebody the appropriate support for that eating disorder when they need it is what's important. And then and that, at that point, you then have to acknowledge the cultural differences, the social differences, like you were saying, that may impact their treatment. But it's not that like a specific eating disorder is going to occur just because of, you know, somebody's skin colour, let's say. Yeah, that and that really reminds me of a time in, you know, body image history where lots of like comparative studies were being done so like at I think this was maybe during the 80s 90s ish um you know there were lots of studies comparing different body image outcomes so let's say body dissatisfaction um comparing how different um ethnicities scored in terms of body dissatisfaction and then sort of almost concluding that because let's say black women might have scored uh, lower in terms of body dissatisfaction than white women, almost concluding that ethnicity was like a buffer to mm. body dissatisfaction, just because inherently your ethnicity as a not white person protects you from, you know, being dissatisfied with your body. But actually, we all know that that's not true now. Mm-hmm. It's just, well, I mean, there are lots of reasons. Um, just just like you know um the media that we were talking about earlier lots of body image um existing body image theories and frameworks kind of started off by conceptualizing that particular theory or or framework around white populations and so that kind of framework is considered white-centric right and if we're using that white-centric framework to measure experiences of people of color we're not really looking at their experiences. All we're doing is to consider or evaluate if their experiences are similar or different from white women. And that doesn't really tell us anything. I mean, it does, but you know, it's, it doesn't give people of color that voice, that spotlight of like highlighting what exactly is going on because all we know is how different they are from white people. Mm. And so like, bottom up kind of approach is quite important because we're like, if we don't even know what is going on, how are we going to tackle the problem? Mm -hmm. And so I think having these like qualitative type studies, so like interview focus groups where participants are able to freely express their experiences Mm -hmm. is a really important first step for us to to even find out what's going on. Because like there's so many different, different types of experiences, even within the sort of Asian category that we tend to group all Asian people within, you know, and um, like, as we mentioned, South Asian women like skin color is really important, but that might not necessarily be as important for, say, East Asian women, Mm. where 
um, facial facial features are more important. So like eye satisfaction is quite an important thing for East Asian women. Um, so just by lumping all your Asians in one, you know, mm -hmm. sort of umbrella category just erases that nuance as well. Cause, cause there are so, you know, there's so many different specific cultural nuance within each subgroup itself. And so these qualitative studies are quite important in terms of like giving us an idea of what's going on within each subgroup. Mm. Yeah. I think, um, in my opinion, eating disorder research on a whole is quite reductionistic. Um, mm in terms of lumping kind of subgroups of people together and just taking, you know, well, the common thing was this, so therefore that's everybody's experience. Um, and I think particularly, you know, when when you're talking about, you know, Asians, like you said, like Asia is a massive continent. Like how could you possibly just be like, oh, we're just gonna lump all of these people together and say that their experience is all the same. And I suppose it's, it is a difficult one because research is a generalization you know, you're never going to be able to kind of, even if you interviewed every single person, you still have to then like compile your data to analyze it and stuff like that. Um, but I think it's so important to kind of think about different people's perspectives. And I guess that's, that maybe more comes apparent in like a treatment setting when somebody is being treated for an eating disorder, or, you know, when you're thinking about body image dissatisfaction and, you know, having the awareness that they're but then I don't know I my head is just like but then that needs to be the case I mean I'm all for individualized care I'm having like a very like brain thoughty moment um right now and kind of like speaking before I'm even thinking um but I guess it just brings me back to this idea of individualized treatment and how important that is and that it needs to be the case for everyone because even if let's say you both grew up in southeast london and you know went to the same school and had similar friends and stuff there's still going to be so many different factors there in terms of maybe how your family lifestyle is or or things like that so it's yeah i think this kind of idea of and it just makes me feel bad now that i've kind of said to you like oh you know how does body dissatisfaction vary with South Asian women compared to maybe like white British women? But I don't know. I'm trying to think how do we approach it in a different way that is I think, more. I mean, I think it's not, it's not terrible um, mm. to group people if we group them correctly and not absolutely mm. Do you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like, yeah, I think people's identities vary and people can have more than one identity. Mm. Um, and also, even though individual differences do exist, there are general trends. I mean, if we're speaking statistically, there are always general trends. And, and again, you know, it depends on what kind of approach we're considering, because from a purely quantitative approach, then obviously we're looking at purely looking at trends, but if we're looking at a from like a sort of purely qualitative approach, then we're trying to look at that individual individualistic experience. So I guess having both types of research, and I mean, in terms of research, obviously having both of that is important because, you know, it gives you different, different perspectives, but I guess in a, in a sort of more practical setting, I, 
I echo your thought on, you know, individual, individualized treatments, mm. um, just because you, there's no one size fits all. Like you mm. just can't put people in one box or even multiple boxes. And like, even if you do people put people in multiple boxes, like the way that these different boxes interact is different. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, it, you can't, like, there's no, you know, there's no one solution to like everyone's problems. Like it's mm. just gotta be broken down and understood like i don't think there is one solution to body dissatisfaction mm -hmm. itself because there are many reasons and some people might do it differently than other people mm -hmm. yeah yeah i think that's kind of the important thing to think is to kind of get a range of different areas of research or types of research and tend then to collate that together but then to still keep in mind you know this is the research it's not necessarily going to be this one individual's <clears throat> experience um and you mentioned about sort of how you know we've we've got the sort of white centric frameworks and you know i think that in treatment it's a very white centric framework in terms of how we help people and support people and i i just wondered off the back of our conversation if you had any ideas again not wanting to generalize but also kind of you have to um on how you know treatment maybe could be adapted better so that it does take into consideration different cultures different races so that people are getting you know a better form of treatment i think i mean i'm like full disclaimer i'm not a health psychologist so don't take my word for it but um i think openness is important Mm -hmm. um just you know as a human being perspective i think openness is important like research can tell us stuff and research can tell us a lot of things and there are always conflicting research as well um so then it comes down to the researcher or the practitioner to decide which side of the research they want to buy if you will you know because there is always whatever phenomenon you're looking at there is like it's not an absolute direction almost there's always conflicting research that emerges and at the end of the day whichever perspective you choose to take is subjective like it's it's never going to be objective because you're choosing which side to take and so i guess openness is important and especially in like a sort of treatment kind of setting i think it's important to really like understand a person's background and like the kind of identities that they you know that they embody and the context that they grew up in and the kind of different influences that are present around them and what's more important to them and what's not and I think also like this is something that um one of my colleagues have mentioned to me before that considering like power dynamics and treatment is quite important as well because as a white practitioner treating like a person of color there is also a sort of like unequal like inequality in power dynamics and that is maybe not as often addressed in trainings or or you know in i don't know workshops or however practitioners are trained um but that's that's important as well because people might choose to disclose specific information and not others um and this actually reminds me of like the interviews that we conduct in in research so like your identity as a researcher when speaking to to the participant is quite important because they might not say certain things to you as a white person or as a person of color and you know so openness is important i think so in that situation and i don't know where i sit with this so i'm interested to hear 
because like you said everyone has lots of different identities um but equally i really like that point about you know somebody may not necessarily open up about um certain things because maybe their culture their race their um gender whatever part of their identity is in that sense do we need to match the researcher to the participant to get the best form of research or do we i don't want to call it an elephant in the room but acknowledge the elephant in the room and that there are differences in the way that the participant and the researcher have their identities like what are your thoughts around that that's a really interesting question i think i think from a pragmatic perspective it's not always possible to match the researcher it would be the absolutely impossible yeah. <laughs> in yeah. an ideal world though would it be better yeah i mean you know we in research we're very you know it's notorious that we never have enough funding for anything let alone hire a different <laughs> researcher to, to interview every you know every different participant um but i think there's always this thing about like acknowledging your positionality in in the research papers that you're writing. And so mm -hmm. like, for example, I was in, I was a part of, I was in this project with a relatively large group of researchers and we've all got different identities. Um, and so kind of acknowledging our different identities and what we brought to that analysis based on our individual identities, I think that was quite important, um, which I guess brings me to the point of transparency. So like when, you know, it's not a thing that it's, it, it, well, increasingly it's, it's catching on, but it's not traditionally a thing that's been done loads in, especially in qualitative research where the researchers disclose their pos positionality. Hmm. So like increasingly there has been this push for transparency. So like if I was conducting a research, I would say that I am, uh, I'm Southeast Asian, I'm a woman, I'm queer, I'm able-bodied, I'm cisgender. However, I'm analyzing participants who are whatever similar features or different identities sort of thing. And so then that kind of contextualizes the analysis for the readers or whoever who's reading, mm -hmm. receiving the, the research. Um, so I guess that's one way of doing it in terms of like presenting the research. But within the interview itself, I don't I don't actually have a an opinion on whether you should address the elephant in the room or, or not. I think if if it's really obvious that there's an elephant in the room, maybe. Mm. But then if there but if it's like not obvious, like there's no tension or anything, I would avoid yeah. I would avoid bringing it up because then it might create unnecessary tension. So for for instance, in my PhD, I my entire like qualitative sample is uh, consists of white women in England. And so there's a massive mismatch of identity. So they're white, cisgender, heterosexual. Yeah, so completely mm -hmm. mismatched. Um, and it's, I mean, it's, I, I think it's pretty obvious from my appearance. So like there was no need to acknowledge the differences, um, but also, my participants weren't i didn't feel like they were withholding any any information from me or like trying to police the way that they say certain things because of my identities or anything i mean some participants have said stuff like oh you look whatever 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 but then they're comfortable enough to to say that so i felt like that's 
fine. Like it wasn't a judgment. It wasn't like a negative. Yeah, yeah. In case, in case that wasn't. No, no, sure. no. <laughs> I was just um, thinking in my head as to whether the other way round it would be the same thing. So let's say that the participants were from a minority group. If that would have the same sort of thing, I think the from like the way that my brain is thinking white participants white straight participants um with a you know a south asian queer interviewer because it's the minority it feels as though if it was the other way yeah around, the the inequality is in a different direction yeah yeah i think yeah for sure i think that will i mean I think there will it will definitely have an effect if it was a white interviewer interviewing like a minoritized group in whatever identities mm -hmm. um but it's not a thing that I think can be easily navigated in in research I mean I would say I think it depends on the focus of the research if the research is about racial discrimination for instance mm. I think my stance would be, I don't think that's a good idea because mm -hmm. that's exactly what you're tapping into. And I don't mm -hmm. think if someone has been marginalized, I, don't, I think it's quite hard for them to speak up to someone to like yeah. the majority group. But if it was, I don't know, a completely unrelated topic like social media use, mm -hmm. then maybe it's fine. Like, I, I think it depends on the focus of the of the research itself. I think you're completely right. Um, once again, <laughs> it's individualized. Um, because as you were sort of talking, I was like, I really like that idea maybe about putting it in the paper that you published just to kind of like, say as you know, a little footnote, like this is this was the sort of demographics of both the because you would never question putting the participants demographics in that's that's what you put in the study. Um, but also of the researcher, um, because I feel like if you know, let's say I was doing the research and, and I just went, yes, yeah, so I'm a straight white woman and obviously you're not, um, you know, that's not going to be like, that's yeah. not going to go for a good interview because you're, you're highlighting the elephant in the room, but like really highlighting it and making it almost mm -hmm. unnecessarily something. Um, but I think, like you said, definitely depends on the type of research that you're doing. If it's completely unrelated, then I don't think it would personally have an impact maybe a, a slight one but not a drastic one whereas if you're talking about experiences that you've been involved in um that involves uh you know marginalization from a majority group and the person sitting opposite you is part of that majority group that's that's going to be difficult to share those experiences but also you know the research probably wouldn't be i feel like the other person might have their own biases as well that would make yeah. that then difficult yeah, I think it. I mean, it can go. It can go both ways. They can. They might. It's possible that they might withhold certain mm -hmm. information because it's. I mean, let's face it. It is awkward. Mm -hmm. um, or if they're like really resentful, it might also go in the opposite direction. So it might not end up well. So I think a lot of it, like a lot of like life things, like mm -hmm. quote unquote life things, um, it really depends on the situation. But then obviously like disclosing the researchers identities i think that's always helpful and mm -hmm. that's that's a thing that's been pushed quite a lot in the in the last few years and in fact i think i mean this is my opinion i think even in quantitative studies i think it's like it's 
it's good practice as well to disclose your mm. identities because you do like at the end of the day even though it's statistics you do make decisions mm-hmm. like in the interpretations of the of the st- statistics in the kind of i don't know like the the explanations the reasoning mm. it, behind the findings like you it does go through like the researcher as a filter and it's not like it's never entirely objective it doesn't mm-hmm. entirely exist beyond the researcher and so i think anything that goes through the researcher or like goes through any human being any knowledge that is put through a human being should it like it should be transparent like what what identities that researcher embody yeah absolutely i think then it allows the reader to make their own judgments as well based on maybe because we've all got internalized biases and you know I think it's very good to be aware of those and maybe to you know really check in how they're how they're affecting you but sometimes they can be so ingrained that maybe you you don't even realize so I think it's really good to disclose that yeah Um, so I guess just kind of for from a last kind of point that maybe we haven't touched on as much was just thinking about I know that you're also researching women's social class and how that may affect maybe their body image or sort of discrimination so I guess would you mind just exploring that for us a bit because to me that's just a quite a lot of words I don't really know (laughs) what they mean when they're put together um I think if we think about social class as a culture like Mm. because social class does shape our social cultural context right in terms Mm -hmm. of social influences our social class shapes the people that we interact with the type you know our family like if we came from a middle class family or working class family that environment is very different um and it shapes the kind of cultural aspect of um the environment around us so like where we work might be different the kind of people we're exposed to at work might be different the kind of schools we go to might be different particularly in the uk i think because schools like the school allocation is quite tight to where you live and that's quite tied to your socioeconomic status so everything is kind of linked right and so Mm -hmm. if we think about social class as a sort of cultural environment it has an effect on body image experiences in a similar way to ethnic culture because that's also a culture right and exactly how i cannot tell you because there there's just no research out there that tells us you know how social class shapes body image experiences which is why i'm doing this phd um i guess in a couple of years i can tell you uh, <laughs> we'll get you back um, yeah but um but I would, you know, I do think that there is a huge difference because of the different, the very different ways that people are socialized within different social class contexts. And I think especially in the UK, that's that's quite interesting because of how salient social class is. Like it's such a, you know, social class doesn't exist anymore, but, you know, it's the, it's very much ingrained in, in a lot of things. It's not spoken about, but it, you know, it comes out in like subtle, very subtle ways. And so it's, it's it's the future I guess mm-hmm. I think we absolutely live in a society that loves to say social class doesn't exist yeah uh, to make themselves feel better 
but I am sorry if you think it I, I'm not saying that classes exist and I want them to exist I'm saying that I think to say that they don't exist is very dismissive and kind of naive um because unfortunately they do and I know that you said you haven't kind of done the research yet and we'll have you on I mean fingers crossed for the beans is still standing in a few years <laughs> so that we can have you back on but do you have any sort of ideas about kind of social class body dissatisfaction body image you know you must have some sort of nuggets as, as to why you wanted to research it I think my sort of guess is that it's not it may not necessarily be that one class might you know people from one social class might feel better or worse about their body mm -hmm. but it's possible that they have different experiences for different reasons um again because you know they're socialized within very different environments um but again i don't know what i don't specifically know what these motivations are mm. as of now but i i don't i mean i i'm not a believer of comparing body image experiences like whether mm. you know one group has better or worse body image um but i think i think you know, everyone is dissatisfied with their body to an extent and everyone is happy with their body to an extent. Like mm -hmm. there's no absolute, I don't think there is. Um, and the difference, the differences that exist is just the reasons behind them. And so it's possible that maybe working class women might feel differently, you know, might feel a certain way for different reasons as compared to middle-class women, we don't know. And then there's always that myth of like white middle-class women being more prone to body dissatisfaction like is that true we don't really know maybe there is a different reason it's possible but again we don't know so yeah two years time two okay well there we go um <laughs> i think it's a really interesting concept and i must say i completely love your approach to it of kind of not just being like i'm going to compare all the different classes to see who's got better or worse because ultimately i think you're so right in that it, it will the factors that will impact it will vary so much like you said you know being in a different environment being socialized differently they're all going to have very different kind of impacts on the way that somebody perceives their body um and i with the whole you know all oh, eating disorders are just like a a white middle upper class sort of thing often i think is that do we have that thought because you know l hopefully less so nowadays i don't really know if it's true they were maybe the people that were able to access the care and the treatment so they were the people that were present in research facilities but you know maybe people from a lower socioeconomic class weren't able to access that support or that treatment so then we don't know about their experiences so I think that's why it's so brilliant that you're not trying to compare them in terms of the differences between them but seeing them as sort of you know these are the experiences that somebody may be um exposed to and that may impact their body image rather than well you know people in the upper class have worse body image because blah, blah, blah. I, I think, again, that's really reductionistic, whereas to explore the individual groups seems like a much more, a much better approach. And and then you could also, you know, I'm sure there will be things that cross over and that, you know, aren't kind of the experiences of everyone. But I think that's definitely the better approach in terms of getting a more generalized, not generalized, but a, a broader overview without being like, 
this compared yeah, to this. Yeah, I think it's like it's more inclusive, I guess, mm -hmm. you know, by considering different perspectives. But that's really interesting about the the access to treatment thing, because I from like from my experiences of recruiting participants to take mm -hmm. part in my interviews, I found it so much harder to recruit working class women as compared to middle-class women and you know the incentive is all it's the same i advertise at you know similar places but it's just i think it's that inaccessibility of academic research as well and if you you know if you take a very quick look at body image like the existing body image literature like you would find that maybe they're all mostly skewed towards the middle classes or like the higher mm. socioeconomic status um samples because most of them are from universities they're mostly mm -hmm. university samples and naturally that's kind of your middle class ish sample right and so yeah so we don't know very much about working class women's body image body image experiences and hopefully we'll find something new yeah i think i when i worked in research i had the same thing in that recruiting like middle upper class uh, was much easier than um, maybe somebody from a lower socioeconomic class. And I think often it's because they don't have as much time to dedicate to research that's maybe not a priority for them. Um, and like you say, um, a lot of people that do, you know, studies part time to earn 10 quid here and there are at university trying to earn a bit of extra cash. Um, and they know about the studies because they're in that research environment already whereas somebody um that maybe hasn't gone to university doesn't maybe know that that's an option so um that's another thing i think that that you definitely have to address in research in terms of how to yeah but i think the good thing about social media is mm. that because of social media i think body image awareness has increased like across in, just in a general population because mm. everyone has access to social media these days oh. and everyone has some sort of understanding of body positivity or at least the movement like whether or not they believe in it um so i think that has helped a little bit in terms of like you know in, in terms of like increasing the relevance for different groups of women um but then you know it's still it's still there are still challenges in recruiting certain yeah. groups mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jamie, thank you so much. This has been so insightful into kind of like the research world. It's been brilliant to chat to you and to hear about kind of the difficulties and hopefully the things that are moving forward in the future. Um, where can people go to find out more about the research that you're conducting? Um, I think Twitter would be a mm -hmm. good place. However, I don't remember my Twitter handle, which is not good. <laughs> I'll put it in the show notes, don't worry. Um, yeah, you do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's been really great. Um, really fun way to spend my afternoon, a yeah, gloomy absolutely. afternoon. Oh, well, you know, I'm going to sound like a really old woman here, but I text my mum earlier saying, how old does this make me? So it's it's not great weather here. It's very windy, but it is really sunny. And I put my washing out um well, at the time it was two hours ago and it was already dry. And I text my mum like, this is the best thing ever. Because like normally I'll have wet washing sitting in my kitchen for like a week not drying. So oh my I, God, that's really awesome. That has never happened to me in the UK before. I think it's because it's so windy. It's almost <sighs> like it's being, the water's being blown off. It. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it was great to chat to you, Jamie. Thank you so much for your time. 
Sounds good. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.